I'm Zoe Bisping, and this is the Full Bloom Podcast, where we're nurturing a more embodied and inclusive next generation. The body positive movement was not created for people that look like me. By most people's account, I am not fat. I can buy clothing off the rack. I'm white. I'm a cisgender woman. I'm able-bodied and highly educated and gainfully employed, partnered, and send my kids to private school in New York City. Sure, I'm hardworking, but I hold many unearned privileges that have afforded me the opportunity to speak to you in this very moment. I say the body positive movement was not created for people that look like me because it really comes out of the fat acceptance movement of the 1960s with a mission to lift folks in the most marginalized bodies up. That straight-sized people with body image distress unintentionally benefit from this movement is, in many ways, just an unintended consequence. This type of body positivity is a phenomenon that my guest today, Deshaun Harrison, suggests is actually a form of benevolent anti-fatness, and that, to quote them, to live in a body both fat and black is to exist at the margins of a society that creates the conditions for anti-fatness as anti-blackness. Anti-fatness as anti-blackness. How do you feel about that? What do you think it would be like to introduce that concept to your family, community, classroom, social studies class? How do we get this conversation started with each other? And how on earth do we get that conversation going with our young people? It's a really important conversation. It's a hard conversation. But I think this powerful conversation that I had with Deshaun, along with their absolutely exceptional book, Belly of the Beast, The Politics of Anti-Fatness as Anti-Blackness, will help get the ball rolling. Deshaun, welcome to the show. Tell me what's wrong with body positivity. I think that there's a number of things that's wrong with body positivity, but I, I think that the general critique that I'm offering in the book is that body positivity sort of repackages a very archaic politic, a very old way of being that essentially says that there is a good fat and a bad fat if a a fat body is being considered at all, right? More generally, who's being centered in body positivity spaces or body positive spaces and in conversations around body positivity is thin people, typically thin white girls. But then beyond that, when perhaps a fat body is being considered It dichotomizes fatness to say that there's a good fat, those who, you know, are, quote unquote, eating healthily and who are committed to losing weight and who recognize their body as bad and who are committed to, you know, fighting against, quote unquote, obesity, you know, that type of thing. 
And then there's the bad fat, the one who cannot be affirmed in body positive spaces, who is not understood to be someone who is, is good or, or important to the conversation. Those are the bad fats. Those are the ones who are not invested in losing weight, who are not invested in eating healthily, who are not invested in combating obesity or like if that's the thing to combat. And I think that that is the general critique that I'm offering in the book. I think that there's a bigger critique there, but generally I, I think most easily understood is that body positivity and body positive spaces are oftentimes not intended to be spaces that are helping to cultivate and push a fat liberationist lens, but in fact are oftentimes existing as antithetical to that idea. And I think we see that most commonly now because it's it's a mainstream conversation. You really you really don't get to interact with pop culture without at some point coming in contact with that language of body positive from artists to politicians to, you know, actors and actresses. I think that we see overwhelmingly a type of conversation around body positivity that really continues to center thinness as a politic and thin bodies and continues to further dichotomize fatness, but it doesn't do so in a way that is necessarily outright or, or overtly anti-fat, which is why I call it benevolent anti-fatness, because I think that body positivity does in many ways hold room for people to not be outright or explicit about their hatred for fat folks in a particular way, but the way that the spaces are cultivated make clear that there's only certain fat bodies that are to be accepted, and those are typically not fat Black bodies. I feel so appreciative that we can speak honestly and openly about this because I am ostensibly the white, able-bodied, cisgender, straight-sized woman who has co-opted this word and this movement. I've convinced myself that by using this term, I am reducing harm because I'm aware that this term has been co-opted by other white, able-bodied, cisgender, straight-sized women that I think do hold that kind of bastardized definition of this word. And I feel like it is something I use as a hook to bring people in that would never come to a fat-positive parenting, wouldn't come to fatliberationparenting.com. Like they wouldn't come because their anti-fat bias is so profound. And so what I want to make sure is that I'm not inadvertently causing harm, you know, because I think there's a lot of nuances and a lot of gray areas here. But I like to think that if we can use this term correctively and then use it to bring people along into the fat liberation movement, kind of as they're ready, when they're ready, but having built trust, I guess, with a white, able-bodied, cisgender, straight-sized woman, like, is that causing more harm than good? Is that creating more good than harm? If I can empower parents to raise more inclusive, genuinely inclusive children who both accept themselves, who are able to accept differences in others, let's say less poorly than the previous generations have done. I guess I'm wondering, like, what's the cost benefit analysis here? Yeah. So I think that intentions matter. And I think that our intentions don't always 
show us the full scope of the impact, right? Mm -hmm. So I like in what you just said to Hayes or Health at Every Size. I have been very vocal about my critiques of Health at Every Size Mm -hmm. while also trying to hold a bit of nuance because I do think that there's a lot of complexities there. By that, what what I'm saying is that Health at Every Size to me is, I think for, you know, a fat individual for the most common fat person, we would be much more happy with being able to walk into a space that is dedicated to a health at every size framework, right? So that we don't go into a doctor's office knowing that, you know, the the focal point of the visit is our fatness, right? right. Or blaming our fatness for, for any sort of, I, I guess, illnesses we may be experiencing. And while that may be true, I also recognize Hayes as a reformist project because it's attempting to salvage a concept that is innately anti-Black and anti-fat, a concept mm-hmm. that, that was designed around not being inclusive of Black fat bodies. And I think that that is true, too, for body positivity. Body positivity is not something that I would say has necessarily been co-opted so much as I would say has been repackaged. Mm-hmm. And I want to like make that distinction because what has always been I guess the name for it has been, you know, fat liberation, fat acceptance. We've moved towards body neutrality and all of that, which I also have critiques of. But <laughs> I, I think that that those have been like more solid names that that have been associated with a fat studies and a fat politic and I guess like a fat liberationist movement. I think that a lot of folks, fat activists and fat scholars alike, myself included for a while, have long said that body positivity has been co-opted. Mm-hmm. I don't, and I'm moving away from that because I think that that's not true. I think that mm-hmm. body positivity was created with the intent to outshine or overlook the work that fat liberationists right. have been doing. And with that, I think that that becomes the harm, right? Because I think mm-hmm. we bring parents or people in general into this conversation. But I think that the introduction to the conversation completely removes a sense of care and intent around understanding fatness as something that is not harmful, that is not bad. By that, I mean that by offering body positivity as a concept, as something that can in any way be liberatory is, I think, harmful in and of itself because it outright does not does not bring the the learner to understanding fatness as good, fatness mm-hmm. as okay, and I think that that that's one of my biggest critiques ar- around that. And and I'm glad that you named that. I'm glad that you you know were talking through how you arrived there because yeah, it it might do you know for other white cis women who are who are moms right who are thin moms and and maybe parenting fat children it might do them some good to be able to, and and may bring them to trusting you, right? As another white cis thin mom to be able to believe in this concept. But what it doesn't do is bring folks to understanding and and trusting who is at the heart of anti-fat violence. And I think that that becomes the biggest downfall of of sort of using that as a Trojan horse, Mm. for lack of better words. But I think what you're saying is so... I mean, it's not scripted here, but finish the sentence. Like, who is the victim of that fat violence? Like, who suffers, right? Who do we miss if we're getting together as 
in a body positive space and talking about what you imagine we might talk about, even if we talk about light weight stigma, because that's part of the conversation, you know, and I think even introducing things like the concept of fat acceptance, maybe even fat positivity, but you're talking about like, I'm doing this. It's like dropping down into the, like the pit of where the deepest suffering is, which is not to say that someone that is fully privileged with thin privilege, white privilege, all the privileges isn't also struggling in some way. But you're talking about the deepest pit of oppression, I think. And you're saying these are the, this is what we're going to miss. And so I wonder if you could tell us right away, like who's down there? Who are we going to be just totally missing? Yeah, so that's exactly what this book is about. It's the politics of anti-fatness as anti-blackness to name that anyone who is not a Black fat person. So yes, everyone suffers in some way or another with, you know, insecurity or, or body image issues and things of that nature. But when you are not a Black fat person, what you're experiencing is the, the sort of residue of what's been created typically by someone who is occupying your body, right? So by thin folks, by white folks in a very particular way, which means that the folks who are at the heart, at the crux, at the nucleus of mm-hmm. this sort of violence are Black fat folks, right? That is that's who is at the heart of anti-fat violence. That's who is at the heart of these experiences that I'm talking about. And so, yeah, you know, like uh, a white fat person may suffer, uh, a white thin person may suffer, a, a non-black thin person may suffer, but what they're experiencing is the residue of anti-fat, anti-black violence. And unless we're talking about that, unless we're acknowledging that as the center of what this violence is, which I don't think body positivity does or seeks to do, then we're not doing enough work to really talk about what is liberatory and what's not. Yes. And I think that there on some level are, maybe this makes sense, maybe it doesn't, but I think in some ways there's sort of obvious connections. It's like, when you talk about the war on drugs or you name all the police violence and killings that we've dealt with, and you have a whole chapter, I didn't even mention this in the questions because I'd have to talk to you for hours, but there are these like social justice causes that a lot of people that like go to the schools that are subscribing to these diversity missions care a lot about. They care, they all have BLM like in their windows, like they, they care And at the same time, there's this weird disconnect. Like you're essentially saying, I think most eloquently, that body positivity is here. And what's down here is anti-blackness and anti-fatness, but you're saying it's anti-blackness. And there are people in the world that get anti-blackness, but they don't get the connection to anti-fatness and they don't understand that then the residue that you're describing is totally related to like a kind of sinister racism that lives inside all of us. Like that's kind of my understanding of what you're saying. And I feel like in some ways the connections are obvious. And and then in other ways, people can't get there. Like they don't, I don't, I mean, maybe people you speak to can get there, but I sometimes struggle to, (laughs) to try to make these connections. And so I'm going to see if you could help us. Yeah. So I think that that part of that is because people actually do not get anti-blackness. I think that anti-blackness is such a, complex 
maybe gratuitous is a word I want to use. I'm not sure. Like, I think anti-Blackness is a very hard thing to get. And I, and I also think that it's not something that's often talked about enough to understand, mm. right? I think that we are, that a lot of the people that, that maybe you're talking about are in spaces that are attempting to work through, through race and attempting mm. to work through race politics, right? And attempting to work through body politics and things like that and are not necessarily interested in talking about anti-fatness and fat politics, not necessarily interested in talking about Blackness and anti-Blackness. And I think that there's a staunch difference between those because I, I think that Black folks are otherized in a very particular way that folks who are raced are not, right? And, and by that, I mean that Blackness as, as a concept, as a creation, is not something that, that was created as a race, but rather race was created as another way to, to name that Black folks are less than human in this way, right? Race mm-hmm. is a humanist concept in, in the same, or a humanist project in the same way that gender is. And so Black folks are, are race is, is, is a concept created as a way to sort of create and sustain a first and second class citizen and say that Black folks even then are outside of that concept, right? Even even Black folks are not even a second class citizen. You are not a citizen at all, right? And so I think that until we get to the nitty gritty of that, of understanding that, that Black folks' Blackness is otherized in a very particular way that mm-hmm. is not talked about and understood in white liberal spaces or in liberal spaces in general, then we won't really get to understand exactly how how much these concepts do not benefit Black fat folks. And so, yeah, I, I think that you are completely right when you name that the type of folks who occupy these spaces are not making those connections, right? I think that a lot of the folks who do have, you know, the BLM in their in in their front yards and stuff like that, oftentimes are also gentrifiers. But I think that in a liberal context, BLM, Black Lives Matter, these type of slogans have been just that. They've been slogans. They've been mm-hmm. they've been phrases that that people can use to sort of identify their politic, but not actually identify their praxis. And I think that that's the difference is that we've created these slogans, these talking points to be able to sort of find our circles, to be able to to say, well, you know, I have this politic and so these are my people, but I'm not going to allow that politic to be something that I allow to fully adjust my life and therefore adjust how I show up in the world, right? I think that it becomes a very easy thing so that people can have their DEI programs and have their, their, you know, diversity and inclusion conversations that don't actually even scratch the surface of what the issue is because it's not about praxis. It's not about practice. It's about your politic and what you can name so that you can build spaces that get funding off of the back of Black lives that are being murdered, right? So that you can get funding off of the back of, of fat folks who are continuously ignored, who are continuously discriminated against, who are continuously harmed by, by various institutions, right? That in many cases, a lot of these folks head, that a lot of these folks are, are, are helping to sustain. Like you said at the beginning of the conversation, you know, a lot of these parents and people of other roles and, and occupations or whatnot are also people who are committed in so many ways to sustaining the diet culture, to sustaining the, the gym industry, to sustaining, um, you know, weight loss industries. And so I think that the disconnect is that their commitment is not to their their praxis their commitment is to the naming of their politic and it starts and ends there 
It does. And I do you think there's a very concise way to explain, for example, why what we understand health to be is an example of a way in which a system in which, to your point in the book, fat black individuals can never be a part of? Just even this word as we know it, health, is there a way to explain that to people? Yes. I, I mean, I think so. I, I wrote it. <laughs> well, yes. Is there a way for me to help explain it to people? Yes. I guess that's the question. <laughs> I think I, I think so. I think that I don't think that there's necessarily an easy way to explain it to people. Right. I think that any way that we arrive to trying to explain this is it's going to be met with some sort of of pushback or or confusion because it's it's a concept that is so deeply embedded in who we are and in our world that you know it, you're you're asking someone to completely to to turn their entire world around in so many ways so i don't expect for it to be so easily understood but um i i think that the best way to explain it is how i'm arriving to this idea is is that Sabrina Strings names in her book, Fear in the Black Body, that anti-fatness becomes a coherent ideology through the transatlantic slave trade and the, and the spread of Protestant Christianity. That is how we get anti-Blackness, through the slave trade and Protestant Christianity in the most simplest terms. That's also how we get anti-fatness. She's naming that in, in this text, which is why I arrive at anti-fatness as anti-Blackness. She's naming that when Americans and, and white Europeans see fatness on Black bodies, this becomes something that is detestable, that's sinful, that's that's bad, that's grotesque, right? And now we have to, we have to create an understanding that if you look like that, then that makes you the other, that makes you the slave, right? So that look is only for slaves. That's, that look is only for people who are not classed, who are not part of this humanist project we're, t- we're trying to create. And so if we have that, that understanding of, of the world and how it functions, then the, the very next step to arrive to is that those very same Europeans, those, those anthropologists, those white scientists decide that the people who look like that, the people who, who are other because of the way that fatness rests on their bodies are also ill physically or mentally because they're attempting to try to to try to escape slavery right so we're going to come up with with terms to determine um we're going to come up with with language to name these folks as mentally or physically ill so that we can punish them for attempting to to escape slavery that's the foundation of the medical industry in the US and the west and and that that foundation has been spread throughout the world to to become a global structure. And so I think that is the easiest way for me to be able to explain that is that if if the very foundation of what we understand to be health in the medical industry is that an attempt to escape slavery makes you mentally and physically ill and the people who are trying to escape slavery are Black fat folks, then there's no way for us to be able to contend with what was designed as inherently harmful for our bodies, right? For our beings. Um, and so I think that, you know, there's there's no like quick one sentence way of explaining that, but, right. but that becomes the easiest way to explain it because I think that 
most people, people who, who care enough, can wrap their mind around understanding how anti-Blackness becomes this concept through slavery and, and Protestant Christianity. If you understand colonialism and even, I, I think, the, the most basic sense of social studies, right? If you understand that, you can kind of understand how you arrived there. Anti-fatness and, and, and fat studies in general is not something that's that's taught far and wide. It's it's a two-decade-old concept. It's right. very, very fresh. And so I think that it takes a lot longer to explain because it's a it's a lot more new as a concept. I don't think it's new as an ideology per se. I think that for as long as Black folks have revolted, fat studies has existed. But I think that in terms of institutionalization, it's very new. And so I think that it will all it will it will continue to take a much longer time to explain those concepts to right. people because you're introducing them to a brand new understanding. A lot of people they have a general understanding and and at least have heard things like racism, right? Or have have heard something like slavery before, for the most part. They have not heard a statement like anti-fatness. No. They are fat phobia is a very new idea to so many people. So it takes a while to explain it, but I think that is is the quickest and easiest way that I'm able to explain to people that you know these are interconnected ideas and, and concepts, right. and, and you know they're not something they're not things that just got started overnight. These have been long systems that have been created centuries ago. Yeah that we're having to continue to learn more and more and more about so that we continue to unlearn more of of what they force us to internalize. You know, and I get a little idealistic because if if I'm not, then I'm despairing. So I I choose idealism sometimes. But I do have a, I have hope for the sort of next generation. And I, I like to imagine, you know, when you said that term social studies, I think about how impactful it could be if over time, even as hopefully not a footnote, but like even as just like a little paragraph, you know, just what you're talking about, a summary of how we come to understand health so that at least we can know that it's important to question what it means. Because if it was built on that foundation, then isn't that a shaky foundation, right? Like we don't accept things like enslavement anymore, we try not to like, you know, and just to plant a seed in the mainstream somehow, like a a small but mighty seed, right? That there's something weird or wrong about not challenging a word like health. If it came out of a history that involved abuse and heinous acts. I mean, I feel like this is, I'm trying to reduce it. Right. But I'm trying to think about like I'm imagine I'm trying to imagine the textbook, right? And the social studies class and like the little blurb, you know, remember from school, like, and there's something about that, or even a, a conversation with your kid. Like, I'm just thinking about how if you're gonna just even try to do your fold it into your anti-racism work, like just to kind of notice, like, yeah, there's we gotta rethink everything, including how we think about health. Like that's just one of the things. Absolutely. That's actually why I said social studies, because I think that if there were people who were committing themselves to sort of taking the heavy research of someone like Dr. Strings and putting that work into textbooks that help students better understand these concepts, I 
I agree. I think that it could be so impactful. I I would love to see what it would look like for for people to not have to wait until they're in college or afterwards to be able to get access to these concepts. Because as as I know, both of us know, so many people don't go to college, mm-hmm. right? And 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 therefore don't have access to, to this language and to these concepts, to these disciplines. But all of us have to be in eighth grade. <laughs> so what would it look like for us to be able to to have to sit in our social studies classes and and get some version of this, not where you turn slaves into immigrants or turn slaves into workers, but where you talk about slavery and slaves as they were and recognize the, the, the overlap, the interconnectedness between slavery and, or rather anti-Blackness and anti-fatness as concepts that, that create so much of our modern world. I think back to what it would have been like for me to be sitting in an AP civics course or an AP lit course um, or an honors English course and, and courses that that I, I sat through um, <laughs> and learned about all of this very white history. I, I can't imagine what it would have been like for me as a high schooler, you know, 15, 16, 17 years old to sit in those courses and learn about these concepts as part of our history, too, to better understand the world in which I live. Can you try to imagine it right now? Like, what do you imagine it would have been like? I love this question. I like imagining things a lot. Uh, I think imagination is important. I think that that would have been such a relieving process, right? Like Mm -hmm. to be able to sit in in these classes. And of course, you know, I was a typical teenager, so I complained about homework and I complained about things like that. Um, But I did my homework. I was consistent in doing my homework. And and, and at the end of the day, I, I learned things from it. And it would have been so much I think fun for me and not fun in that the concept is fun itself, but to be able to, to dive into this history of my own, to be able to learn more about all of that. I I imagine that sitting in class would have been a lot less boring. I imagine that I would have been a lot less distracted while I was in those classes because I was learning about something that mattered um, and that was important to me. And yeah, I, I, I think that it would have helped me in so many ways to be able to have that language, to be able to live with the language I have now about my body at 15 years old. I think it's unimaginable, but I know that it would have been great for me. And I think it would be great for any 14, 15, 16 year old to be able to have access to because they don't have to be adults figuring things out, right? They're learning at their young age what it would look like um, or, or what it means, rather, to exist in this body, in these bodies, in this world with a better and much clearer understanding. I, I, I think that that would have just been a, a, a much less traumatic experience, to say the least. I mean, it sounds like on some level you would have felt seen like that something in that would have made you feel like you weren't being neglected, like you weren't being left out of the lesson or the the world. Yeah, I don't I don't even know that I would use the language scene because I feel less concerned with being represented and more concerned with not being gaslit. I recognize 
what we experience as Black students in the U.S., in the West in general, as gaslighting. For years, you are telling us that there is no significant history of our own, that, that there is no relationship. We have no relationship to the world's history, right? We have no, I guess, stake in what our history is. And then you learn that so much about how we experience the world today is because of our history that has been ignored, that has been disregarded, that has been discarded. And so, yeah, I think that it would mean not gaslighting teenagers and kids for their entire lives, only for them to have to grow up and some of them go to college and and then learn that the past 18 years of their lives were wrong and that they were gaslit and abused for 18 years um, before they actually got access to any real knowledge. Yeah, just psychologically traumatic. Gaslight, that word sometimes gets bandied about, you know, like, don't gaslight me. (laughs) I hate that it's... I mean, but what you're describing is is such profound invalidation, right? I mean, in terms of your sense of self and that in developing sense of self as for a young person, I mean, that's so disorienting and har- harmful. I mean, you used the word abusive. I guess I want to really just ask you what it was like or what it is like, because just to pull from your own chilling words, What is it like to breathe in the body of a being that never existed? Like when you think back on your own childhood, what did you desperately need that you that you didn't get? Yeah, I I think that breathing in in this body that that does not exist, that is that breathes in a body in a world that has been helping on making sure that it does not exist is a very it's it's to always live in a space of contradiction. And I think that it's like this paradoxical, maybe like oxymoronic experience because you grow up and you are experiencing waves of what I continue to name as, as abuse, right? Because nothing about the world is set up to offer you care. And so for years you go without that care you're you're forced into these diets and 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 you know this gym culture and doctors and parents and teachers and you know adults in your life they harass you for your body and they continue to offer harmful words but also harmful practices in your life as an attempt to force you or coerce you into living as you are are quote unquote, supposed to, right? And I think that that's what it means to breathe in a body that does not exist, to have experiences that are continuously disconnected from the reality, or I like the word that you use, disjointed. And I I think that fat children, fat Black children in particular, deserve to be in environments that offer them care and, and offer them love and concern, not for whether or not they're losing weight, but for their well-being, right? How do you feel in your body? Do you feel like you're like you are being cared for? Do you feel like you're being shown up for? I don't care about you losing weight. What I care about is that you know that you feel cared for, that you feel shown up for, that that you feel good in your body. And you know, I you know, I think that 
fat Black folks deserve to not have to live in a world predicated on their demise. And that is the ultimate goal for me. And that should be the ultimate goal for everyone, but especially for people who are caring for, in any capacity, fat Black children. I have such a, such a deep, deep, deep space in my heart for fat Black kids and such a deep care for them because so much about this world was created to harm them. And so I, it's imperative to me that everything that I could do, that any of us can do to make sure that they are cared for, um, that we're doing it. Yeah. I mean, you're saying this is the only way they can fully bloom. Like this mission of this whole, you know, I used to ask everyone, what's the one thing you'd like a listener to do today to help the children in their life fully bloom? And, you know, I think that the reality is that the question, it's a different question for if I hear you, like it's a different question or a different answer if we're talking about fat black children. And I think you're, I mean, I'm hearing you say that we have to actively affirm their bodies. Yes. Right. Actively and consistently not punish them and punish their bodies and not make them feel like they have to correlate movement with punishment, but that you are affirming their bodies, that you want them to do with their bodies what they feel comfortable with. I don't, I don't know a fat black, I don't know a, a, a child in general who doesn't enjoy movement, who mm-hmm. doesn't like to run around and, and enjoy themselves. And they shouldn't have to relate that to punishment. They shouldn't have to build a connection between playfulness and, and enjoyment with punishment for their bodies. And so often they do because they exist in a body that that is widely understood as something that that should be punished. And so, yeah, I, I think that, you know, yeah, we must actively affirm fat Black children's bodies and, and love on them and love on their bodies for what they are, whether they are changing or not, and being cognizant of the fact that their bodies do not have to change and they don't have to change and, and that we can do a lot of good if we allow and encourage children to move just because they want to, just because it's fun, just because it's, it's exciting and not force them into a shell because now every time they think about moving and, and playfulness, they think about punishment. Right. And shame. Right. So I think partially selfishly, and then also to bring it full circle, I guess the question is for white not fat children, what do they need to do? Like, how can they grow and bloom into allies for these fat black children? Because I feel like that's part of this. Like, it can't just be in a vacuum, right? It's part of the community. So I I wonder if there's any parting words you have for the children that will be the fat black children's peers or in community with them to some extent. What do you have for me or for them? Well, I think that the the first thing is that they should have a desire to be more than just an ally. I think that allies fail. And not only do they fail, because we all fail, but allies fail with no remorse. I think of allies in the same way that I was describing white liberals a little bit earlier, where, you know, 
it's about being able to name yourself as something, not so much about your your praxis. And I I think that they should want. I love what you, the word you you used at the end of the question. The the desire should be community. It should be to become accomplices, to become people who care so much about your peers and people who are not your peers that you're not thinking about them only as political pawns that then make you an ally, but rather oh. thinking of them as people that you love and, and want to care for. So now you're actually in community with them. And that's so important. I think so many people do think about it as like, you know, well, I have to be an ally to these folks. So so now what I do is I make them political statements. Yeah, it, it, yeah, I feel I feel gross that I use the word now, but I mean, no, I, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you use the word because so many people use that term. and and and. I think that this is the perfect space to be able to to create that distinction. Yes, don't be an ally, be an accomplice. Yes, be become community with with folks because I think that that's the difference between political motivations and actual desire to care for the people you're talking about. And I think that's oftentimes what gets missed in those conversations um that there's no real genuine desire to actually build relationship with people beyond political motivation. So I don't, I, I'm really glad that you used that word. And I'm really glad that I got to make that distinction because I think this is a perfect place to do it. And I think that it's, it's what's most important is that we really start to move beyond that as a concept and become accomplices to marginalized people and become community with marginalized people. Because I think Therein, we find the importance of showing up for folks. And also, we, sh- we realize what it is that they as individuals need. I think we all oftentimes make very sweeping statements yeah. about what folks need and what they don't. But I think that when we actually get to know individuals, we learn what they actually need and what actually works best for them. So that's my, that's my takeaway for, for parents, for, for the children, learn more, read more, watch more, listen more, so that you build a genuine interest in building connections with people versus becoming allies to them so that you can really know what folks need and how you have to show up in your own capacity. And if you are thinking about more general statements, the, the, I wrote an article last year and, I, and with three main takeaways and I stick by them. And in the context, it was about, you know, white folks who want to be allies to to black folks in the middle of these uprisings, but it applies across the board. And what what I named was you give resources, you give money and be willing to give up your life. Right. Like that is that's the the call is that you, you, you know, you're housing folks, you're, you're providing folks with, with food and, and money and resources. And ultimately you are putting yourself and your body on the line to make sure that folks are cared for. What would it look like for, for you to be at these protests and putting your physical body in front of black folks who are being, you know, antagonized by police? It, that, it, that same concept must apply to every part of our lives. And so, yeah, that is, that's my takeaway. Yeah, we have to let that be the end because I can't do better than that. So that's today's show. As always, please, if you're enjoying the show, rate, 
review this episode on Apple Podcasts, share this episode so more people can join this body-positive nurturing movement. Thank you all for listening, and tune back in next time for more body-positive nurturing wisdom.